I'll leave it at that one. Um, so, um, I'm back in the game. I've eaten. Lunchtime is over. Uh, feeling a bit more energetic now. So, um, yeah. So, welcome back to part two. Um, yeah, I guess it's really going to make more sense if you listen to part one first. Um, anyway, so I'll get straight back into it. I have the bookmark here. So in the first episode, <clears throat> the first part of this episode, um, yeah, I talk, I talked about the society of the spectacle, the book that really influenced the kind of, uh, critiques that I was interested in. And then in this chapter, I'm on chapter two now, um, I'm going to be talking about um, kind of a bit about art history, I'm pretty sure, and about how artistic practices in the past have been socially engaged in different ways. Um, and then it's going to lead on to chapter three, which is going to be talking about how uh, some current um, artistic practices are socially engaged, uh, coming from the lineage of the ones I describe in this chapter. So um, I'll just read the start of the second chapter again. It's only a small paragraph. So in light of the problems previously discussed in chapter one, the role of the artist is under revision due to the restraints placed on it by bureaucracy and commodification in capitalist societies, which impedes human potential. Human potential. Turn off my... Yes. Um... Here, the relevance of art in so ideologically an oppressed society is clear. This oppression gives rise to changing notions of the artist in the pursuit of emancipation. Artists throughout history have been mirrors to society, and it is through the reflective nature of the artist that society has often been shown for what it is, and thus provoking a need for change where necessary. Utopian ideologies have been at the centre of many artistic careers. With the advent of the Society of the Spectacle, when that critique first came out in the 60s, late 60s, I'm pretty sure, um, artists are losing faith in passive contemplative visual artworks, as there is a growing awareness that this type of of communication has been entirely appropriated by the commercial world. A recalcitrant nature is present in object-based art. A recalcitrant. That's also another word I have probably not used or probably haven't even read that word anywhere else since I wrote this recalcitrant. I'm pretty sure it means um, like trying to improve, trying to help. A recalcitrant nature is present in object-based art. But it is inevitable that these objects produced by artists will be commodified by market values, regardless of their inherent prospect for emancipation or like change or due to some critique that's in the art. It is important to state here that it is not the aim of this thesis to champion participatory or socially engaged art over contemplative object-based art. 
all art is good. Um, for French philosopher Jacques Rancière, um, the aesthetic does not need to be sacrificed at the altar of social change, as it already inherently contains this ameliorative promise. Now, that ameliorative does mean like to make something better. Amelioration means like to improve something. Um, participatory and engaging works are direct interventions into specific socio-political problems focused on by the artist who conceives the works. Um, such artists' adaption to socially engaged practices now plays the emphasis Sorry, some artists' adaption to socially engaged practices now place the emphasis of their practice on restoring the social bond, providing a space for creativity and communication otherwise lacking in contemporary society as described in the Society of the Spectacle. Because the Society of the Spectacle was all about how human relations have been affected so much by advertising People now relate to each other um, via the kind of semiotics of advertising. Um, Guy Debord is frequently cited by modern practitioners for his theorization of collectively produced situations as a means of, sub of subverting the spectacle with the Situationist inter International, his artistic group that he was involved in his art group, um, who played a notable role in the student protests and workers' strikes in Paris, May 1968. Um, this period is considered to be the watershed moment when French society shifted from a conservative moral ideal to a more social moral ideal. This is just one example in the history of art where socio-political problems and aesthetics are intertwined. Contemporary art practices, which are discussed in Chapter 3, are part of a historical trajectory of socially orientated practices. Other historical precedents, for example, are as follows. Courbet and the social realist painters, uh, who exposed the bourgeoisie's indulgence in prostitution and the division of labour. Mm. Um probably could have fleshed out some more of these examples but anyway uh, the russian constructivists who attempt who attempted quite literally to construct a new world and disseminate their proposals through I just, i'm thinking of something else here wait a sec <laughs> the russian constructivists who attempted quite literally to construct a new world and disseminated their proposals through the medium of art and dadaism the expression of a political revolt against the atrocities witnessed in world war one dadaists believed that there was an oppressive intellectual rigid rigidity rigidity in both art and everyday society society their work can be characterized by a deliberate irrationality and rejection of the prevailing standards of art they influenced later movements including surrealism which was an exploration of the writings of sigmund freud on the recently discovered unconscious mind dadaism also influenced more recent artists such as guy de boer himself and the situationist international art movement so art does have quite a controversial history in terms of involvement in political happenings the social struggle has provided much inspiration for artists and continues to do so Chapter 2.2, Changing Perspectives. 
Art historian Erwin Panofsky argued that the perspective in Renaissance paintings placed the viewer at the center of a hypothetical world. And I have a thing here, see picture number one. He does, it's a, it's a Renaissance painting with like, you know, proper perspective as opposed to medieval flatness and like kind of like <laughs> silly perspective. A uh, very re uh, realistic perspective arrived into art again in European art in the, within the within the Renaissance. He thus equated Renaissance perspective with the rational and self-reflective subject as defined by René Descartes. He thus equated Renaissance perspective with the rational and self-reflexive subject as defined by René Descartes, I think therefore I am. In this Renaissance sense of self, a person is regarded as a rational, centered and coherent humanist subject. Mm -hmm. 32, where is that from? Um... Modernist aesthetics reflect this perspective as they are certainly predicated upon the concept of an individualized vision or oeuvre, meaning it's a French word for work. Modernist aesthetics reflect this perspective as they are certainly predicated upon um, the concept of an individualized vision or oeuvre. However, in the later stages of modernism and in postmodern practices, this individualized concept has been under attack from many quarters. The inflated imperialist ego of members of society, nurtured by the free market model, as discussed in chapter one, is symptomatic of this Cartesian perspective. The rise of installation art is synchronic with the dissemination of post-structuralist theories in the late 1960s, which put forth the subject as fragmented, decentered, and dependent on interdependency with other subjects and social structures. In a way, it's a little bit like um, in the Renaissance days, they were kind of saying like, every man is an island and then he, they're saying that because of post-structuralist theories from the 1960s onwards, they're taking up the no man is an island and everyone is more connected to everyone else. Um, okay, that's some, po it's a poet who said that. One of the romantic poets, I'm pretty sure, said that. Um, and if I'm not, and if I'm not mistaken, I think it was a Buddhist who said something, be unto yourself an island. I'm not. I'm pretty sure a Buddhist said something like that, and then one of the Romantics said the opposite, and it seems to have been the Romantic one that is more generally known now. No man is an island. So, um, installation art enabled viewers to quite literally enter into the artwork and perceive it from different perspectives, the aim being to decenter the Cartesian perspective. You see, like, like the philosophy of a time, how it, affects, how it affects the art of the time. Like in the Renaissance, it would have been humanist. Yeah, like he said there, um, uh, a rational, centered, and coherent humanist subject. And then with post-structuralist theories of, from the 1960s onwards, it's all about kind of interdependency with other people and social structures and stuff like this. 
So therefore, as a result of that shifting kind of a focus or thinking in philosophical terms that fed its way into artists, artists were probably reading some philosophers at the time, um, these post-structuralist philosophers, and, and then installation art came about so that people weren't just painting uh, like Renaissance or natural or realistic type um, perspective in pictures because of the post-structuralist theories they made installation art so the person could actually enter into the work of art and experience it from all these different um, perspectives. Um, since this time, there has been a steady rise in community art practices within the art world. Collaborative projects have been subverting the notion of the artist as a solitary genius figure. So here's another kind of shift. Um, this chapter was called Changing Perspectives. Yeah. So since this time, since the kind of advent of installation art and because of the changing conception of uh, perspectives, um, there has been a steady rise in community art practices within the art world. Collaborative projects have been subverting the notion of the artist as a solitary genius. Um, sharing the creative process with others, the artist takes subsidiary position in relation to the individual art practice. This changing notion of the artist is impeded by the mass media, however. Popular images in the media of the artist as a solitary, misunderstood figure are misleading representations in the context of contemporary art practice. Grant Kester, a supporter of socially engaged art and a teacher himself, notes the cult-like devotion that students display in their solipsistic impetus for self-expression. Now... I was totally kind of going with this when I was writing this, but I'm not, I, I don't really, I'm not so, like, I, I'm really not against either either form of this art. I mean, if a person, I mean, you know, like, you, I'm a human, you're a human. Things that happen to you are are relatable to me things that happen to me are relatable to you so you can't avoid the fact that you're an individual and you know you're living in this life and stuff is going to happen to you and you can't just not talk about that because oh you're being solipsistic or something <laughs> you know it's ridiculous it's actually uh so now at this stage um coincidentally there's a footnote for that sentence that I just read, read, read out and it's footnote number 36. And I'm about to say now that I'm 36 <laughs> years of age, my uh, stance on these things is a bit different. Um, we like, yeah, we can't. I mean, obviously, we need, we need to think of others, obviously, but we can't do that to the detriment of ourselves Um even in terms of artistically speaking, what? So there's going to be a generation of 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 art being made that it isn't going to be um, like art that is representing some aspects of individual life. It's just going to be all about other people's experiences or something. You know, it, it can't, it shouldn't be like that. So there's room for everything to happen at the same time. So, uh, so yeah, this egotistical impulse is arguably equitable, uh, equitable with the Cartesian perspective, which has adapted to the competitive free market model of capitalism. Well, sure. 
Um, yeah. Um, capitalism does kind of foster uh, egotism. Um, but um, yeah, I'll just continue on. Um, um, the, the role of the artist in society is shrouded with the notion of the romantic artist who remains on the peripheries of society. You know, like, um, okay, what, what I'm about to say in this chapter is, yeah, the artist isn't so much with the types of artworks that I'm talking about, the art practices that I'm talking about in this chapter or in this thesis. Yeah, they're very engaged. The artist goes into a community, for example, and does stuff with the, does projects with the people. Whereas other kind of maybe previous artists were like, um, you know, maybe, you know, feeling alienated from society, feeling like kind of outsiders from society and detached from society and making work from that perspective. I mean, th that's still going to happen. Artists are still going to be making work like that. And, you know, so as I, as I said, there's room for both. So, um it's all good. Um, so, yeah, the role of the artist in society is shrouded with the notion of the romantic. Yeah, I'm being a bit uh, dramatic here, maybe or something or a bit bit biased or something. Maybe I was caught caught up in the sway of these um, people trying to justify the change in uh, types of art. But anyway, as I'm saying, it, it can all exist. It's all fine. The role of the artist in society is shrouded. It doesn't have to be like a total tyranny that, oh, no more artists can make art about their own experience or something like that because that's ridiculous because you're a person, <laughs> I'm a person, <clears throat> we have to deal with that, you know. Um, the role of the artist in society is shrouded with the notion of the romantic artist who remains on the peripheries of society. Kester himself criticizes the predominant pedagogy, which is like te teaching methods. Kester himself criticizes the predominant, meaning like uh, most, most dominant, most... Uh, widespread teaching methodologies in art education institutions where artists are trained to remain autonomous. Students are educated to meet the demands of the established art market. Yeah, I was quite cynical about this as well. Um, as I was saying in the last episode, I was like <laughs> um, really bogged down, as they say, I guess in the English speaking world, bogged down. Um, or like really like uh, cynical about things, um, uh, very bothered by a lot of things in yeah the world and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I worked through it and um, yeah, it's much better now. <laughs> the role of the where well, I'm not reading that sentence again. Kester himself criticized the predominant pedagogy in art edu education institutions where artists are trained to remain autonomous. Students are educated to meet the demands of the established art markets. And the art markets would have been something that I would have had kind of like uh, an issue with, like, oh, you're just making art to suit the market. Why don't you make art that actually affects society rather than fits into a, a current, you know, art market status quo? You know, that's what my stance would have been. And yeah, I probably still would think the same thing. Um, he states that, um, I'm just reminded of some Nietzsche quote again, it's like anything that is, 
what is it? Um, vaguely recalling some quote here about um, being far from the marketplace is where um, like new things really happen or something. I don't know. That quote is not coming to my head now. But anyway, um, where am I? Students are educated to meet the demands of the established art market. He states that they are trained to be good producers in order to please, in, in order to please and impress teachers, critics, and most importantly, collectors. Yeah, it's like every everything. I, I'm pretty sure I say it somewhere in this thesis. Like every new kind of critique. Every new kind of view on how to change something is comes from a person who's outside of whatever he's um, critiquing, right? And then that critique finally somehow makes its way into the thing he's critiquing, or the group is critiquing, critiquing like an art, uh, the art world or something. Some artist critiques the art world, and then the art world kind of kind of acknowledges it, but then. It gets, um, how to explain this? Um, there's a phrase, will it come to mind? All, all critiques ultimately get, um, what's the word? Like co-opted or they get integrated in, a, in, a, in such a way that like nearly 50% of the actual critique, mm, the effectiveness of the critique is kind of taken out of it or something. It's kind of neutered or something to a certain extent, or or else it's just not fully understood. Um, this just seems to be what happens. <laughs> mm. um, like, for example, here, what I'm talking about, the art markets and artists making uh, art for uh, collectors and stuff like that. There was a movement, again, I think it's in like the 60s. It was uh, called Institutional Critique, where artists were making art that was critiquing museums and galleries and the way that art was being so kind of corralled by, let's say, the bureaucracy of art galleries itself. Art was becoming um, corralled, maybe somewhat neutered, somewhat kind of a... Um, kind of... Uh, what's the word? Um, yeah, it was being, let's say... Yeah, tamed perhaps by the institution that is supposed to kind of uh, give it its platform. Anyway, um, uh, yeah, that's enough there to say the um, it was relevant to say the institutional critique. Um, you can give that a, a Google if you want, um, or or a Brave. I'm using Brave now instead of Google. Um, give it a brave um, institutional critique uh, art practices um, so they are indoctrinated with market values and produce works which serve to maintain the status quo this indoctrination is anesthetizing to art artistic critique yeah that's what I'm just was, like, was explaining there anesthetizing that's like an anesthetic you know you're numb to it um, Carol Becker, protege of a prominent member of the Frankfurt School of Thought. The Frankfurt School of Thought was a bunch of, they were coincidentally Jewish intellectuals from Germany who were all kind of Marxists. And then 
during World War II. They fled Germany and they went to America and then they set up, um, yeah, they kind of continued their work in America. And they were there, there's a couple of them, like Herbert Marcuse. Um, who else was there? Can't even think of their names right now. Mm, that's, yeah, it's been so long, I can't remember any, any of their other names now. But if I saw them, I'd be like, oh, yeah, he's in the Frankfurt School. Anyway, um, Habermas, is he, is he Frankfurt School? Okay, it, it doesn't matter. It, they'll come to me. Maybe I even mention them here. Um, so, Carol Becker, a protege of a prominent member of the Frankfurt School of Thought, Herbert Marcuse, who heavily criticized our capitalist model of society, that Herbert Marcuse did, argues that... American art students have not been trained to think globally or politically about their position in society. She states optimistically, however, that she has noticed a trend in which artists are refusing the place of isolation and marginality uh, they have been given, which they themselves romantically have often confused with freedom. Her claim is that artists have become complacent in their role as disenfranchised and infantilized beings. Um, she believes that the best situation an art educational institution could offer is if all artistic approaches were nurtured so that students could become aware, more aware of the whole range of possibilities. Well, I totally agree with that. That's that's pretty cool to be open as opposed to if you go to an art college somewhere and the teachers are just kind of like, you know, kind of like um, <laughs> grooming you for... Um, to, to slot into what's currently maybe popular or something, you know, but as they're saying here, if you have an art education where it's completely just, you know, thinking critically of everything and aware of the dangers of kind of like being influenced to just accommodate market uh, needs, you know, that kind of crap. <laughs> so, yeah, I am I agree, I agree with Carol Becker here still. Um, and within that, to choose what they are going to do. Yeah, so you see all the kind of different types of art forms that are possible. Um, uh, and then with once you've experienced all that, then you can choose for yourself. She believes it is important for students to know that their definition of their practice can evolve and change. Mine certainly did anyway. Uh, Becker states that art students need not be separate from the rest of community. For if they are separate, she believes the only thing that they can generate their work about is themselves. Everything in society exists within a society. Her belief is that students should think about where they are in relation to society. She believes, first and foremost, however, that in order for students to adopt this new attitude, they have to see models of people who have, um, who have made these transitions into practices which are more socially aware and or engaged. Chapter 3 discusses such models for the changing role of the artist in society. Contemporary artistic Excuse me. <laughs> Contemporary artistic practices, which are discussed in chapter three, aim to raise awareness of the individual's responsibility in society. Awareness is increased in both the artist and the viewer slash participant. Just some references there. On the bottom of this page, there's a writer called Susie Gablick. Um, the book is Conversations Before the End of Time. 
On the last page, who else do we have? We have Grant Kester, more Susie Gablick, uh, another lady called Lorraine Lesson, uh, another lady called Claire Bishop. These are all pretty good writers to read if you're interested in this type of art, socially engaged, contemporary socially engaged um, art practices. So, chapter three, socially engaged art. Chapter 3.1, titled Relational Aesthetics. This is a type of art movement from, I think, the late 1990s, early 2000s. Um, one discussion around socially engaged art is of relational aesthetics. You can look this up, give it a brave. Which are self-professed emancipatory works as theorized by Nicholas Bourriot. Um, if I said his name right, Nicolas, B-O-U-R-R-I-A-U-D-S, Borio, I think, um, in his book, Relational Aesthetics. His theories are influenced by the work of Guy Debord. In his short book, he has documented and theorized a trend in artworks which commenced around 1990. Yeah. The work which he describes usually consists of a platform where engagement between the public and the artist can occur or sometimes without the artist's presence at all. The artist takes the role of a stage designer and attempts to establish the dramaturgy. So yeah, so an artist attempts to kind of like set up an installation and whatever the installation is about that's going to hopefully influence the type of conversation that people have while they're in the um, installation. Um, where am I? This stage for convivial relationships to take place sets up a counteraction to what Bourreau believes to be apparently uh, quote, the most burning question to do with art today. Is it still possible to generate relationships with the world in a practical field, art history, traditionally earmarked for their representation? I'll read that again. Is it still possible to generate relationships with the world in a, in a practical field, art history, traditionally earmarked for their representation? Um... I think he's talking about art used to be all just representations. And now I think he's talking about um, art is trying to not make representations, but it's trying to make relationships. That's what the work is about. It's not reflecting on representations like a painting or a sculpture or something. I think now the shift is because of critiques like the society of the spectacle and about how human relations have become um so uh, influenced and uh, colonized like by the mass media and everyone relates to each other via the mass media um that's the medium now of relation almost um so yeah he's saying because of those kind of critiques from the 1960s onwards artists started thinking okay so representational art is maybe um maybe we can try something different maybe we can try and make art where the artwork directly is about the relationships that occur when people are experiencing the art, like in an installation situation, for example. Um, and this is, you know, this is how art changes. Um, as I said, it's reciprocal to whatever the situation is in each time, in each era. So when social relations become so kind of um, 
um, yeah, re really affected by mass media. It's, it's the social relations that are kind of in danger, let's say. So then art focuses on that and says, right, how do we make artwork that's purely about these social relations to bring it back to a more uh, authentic um, uh, way of relating to each other as opposed to just um, uh, using the mass media uh, as our medium of relating to each other. So he takes as his source for this question the work of Guy Debord. Um, the representation he is referring to alludes to society as, as Debord describes it. Representations have historically been at the very core of art. So the predicament now is, what can art do with these representations when life itself is being reduced to representations? Yeah, that's what I was, I was just describing. Um... Here lies the conglomerated essence of the emancipatory project of relational aesthetics to promote convivial relationships in order to allow democratic dialogue to take place in an attempt to restore lost communications as described by De Boer in The Society of the Spectacle. This reclaiming of lost communications is attempted through the constructing of micro-utopian situations in art galleries. Bourriot argues that it is better to establish temporary utopias in the here and now than to leave them as vague aspirations for the future. I mean, that sounds pretty cool. The work of Rirkrit Tirvanesia um, is championed by... Uh, Borio in these relational works. Tiravanesia's, am I saying that right? Tiravanesia's work is exemplary of the types of social interstices relational artists provide. Social interstices, interstices, relational artists provide. Mm. Interstices. I haven't looked, I haven't, probably once again, <laughs> I don't think I've come across that word since I wrote this thesis. I don't have a internet here now but yeah give it a brave give it a brave interstices um inter s-t-i-c-e-s Boriode appropriates the word interstice from Karl Marx ah okay maybe I explain it it refers to trading communities which elude the capitalist capitalist model of economy by removing the relationship between trading with that of profit. Barter and autarkic types of production are util utilized in place of money. Ah, okay, so interstice is a kind of a, yeah, it's an alternative um, form of trading without money. Yeah, like barter. Um, I'm not sure what autarkic means now. Autarkic types of production are utilized in place of money. This interstice system, however, fits harmoniously into the rest of society quite openly, but simultaneously suggests other possibilities for the predominant system in which it rests to follow. Yeah, so he's like, this is what he's saying about Borio is saying that these relational artworks, they rather than, you know, drawing pictures about what utopia could be or something, they're, they're, actually enacting micro-utopias in the here and now um, 
with kind of the influence of coming from Marx's uh, interstice, which is like some little community, maybe that barters with each other as opposed to, uh, you know, selling their goods or whatever. So it's an actual different way of doing things um, really happening. Like in the earlier chapter, the Society of the Spectacle um, presents itself as inexorable, meaning the only possible way to do something. So showing these interstice little communities is disproving the um, is disproving the inexorability <laughs> of uh, the society of the spectacle. So that's pretty cool. Um, this interstice system, however, fits harmoniously into the rest of society quite openly, but simultaneously suggests other poss possibilities for the predominant system in which it rests to follow. So yeah, you're saying, look, this little interstice community um, is quite, it's quite, um, it's, it's, it's working. We, it, we can work like this. So then it just would require it spreading out, maybe getting bigger. Um, Borio claims, this is precisely the agenda of contemporary relational works. I mean, yeah, now I'm reading this and I'm, I'm thinking, sounds cool. But I think at the time I was a bit influenced by critique, by, um, by critics of these artworks called relational aesthetics. I, I had read quite a bit of, I think I'm going to discuss them here. I had read quite a few of the critics of this type of artwork, and I think I was a bit swayed by them. But right now I'm reading this and I'm like, yeah, relational aesthetics, that's pretty cool. Um, micro utopias in the here and now as an example of what can really be uh, uh, actualized. These works aim to dissipate the callous social relations as dictated by exchange value, commodification and instrumental rationality. I mean, brilliant. Yeah, very cool. Tiruvanesia, who set up a makeshift, a makeshift kitchen in the, trio, in the 303 gallery in New York, allowed the visiting public to cook and eat meals there. <laughs> that was the artwork. People could go in and cook in the gallery. He set up a kitchen. Mm. He has also made a wooden replica of his New York apartment for another gallery in which the public again were allowed to use as their own. They cooked, ate, slept, showered, relaxed and discussed in this in the replica. Um, what was the purpose of that one? Relational works often involve installations such as Liam Gillick's backgrounds. He considers them as he considers them as such because they are but a situation for dialogue to take place in, as he has stated himself. So this guy Liam Gillick, this artist, he considers his uh, yeah his artworks backgrounds for a, com a certain a certain type of conversation to take place. Mm. These artists, however, reject their work being labelled as installation. Ah, okay. They understand that word to imply contemplation rather than action. All right. Borio, <clears throat> artistic quote, artistic activity for its part strives to achieve modest connections, open up one or two obstructed passages and connect levels of reality kept apart from one another. Nice. Um, that's from his book, uh, Relational Aesthetics. Um, the objective of relational works is beneficial, but they have received much criticism. Yeah, and now here I'm about to get into all the criticism that I read of it. Um, so, the micro-utopian idea. Okay. 
that's pretty cool. Um, but I'm just thinking, if people come in and cook in a kitchen, I'll read on, maybe I, I get back into it. Borio has been frequently criticized, the interstice thing, the, the barter, that's interesting. Um, Borio has been frequently criticized for aestheticizing relations, which is self-defeating to the intended goals the very work aims at. One critique, um, one critic of relational aesthetics is Claire Bishop. I mentioned her a few minutes ago. These settings may very well succeed in providing a departure point for dialogue to occur, but Bishop contests that the quality of these dialogues is not questioned. Mm. Borio argues that encounters are more important than the individuals who compose them. Mm hmm Implying here that dialogue about democracy is for everybody, regardless of what position they hold in a bureaucratic society, right? Borio takes a grassroots policy in relation to his socio-political aesthetics. Yes, okay. The relational shows he has curated have immediacy about them. The immediacy is apprehended as a situation for a micro-utopia to be played out, no matter how temporary it may be. The question is then, where does this immediacy lead to? Like, where is this micro-utopia? What is it actually leading to? Um, what is the effect of the public's experience with these works? Do the spaces really promote dialogue centered on the topic of democracy to take place as they are intended to do? I'm just thinking, like, that artist set up his studio... I set up his apartment in a gallery and people could go in there. I mean, I don't really see how that is. Um, I guess I'd have to be there in it, but, um, or the one where a person makes up a kitchen and people can go in. Um, I'll read on because otherwise I'll have a big, uh, kind of a, <laughs> a big, uh, maybe a slow kind of, um, thinking about that. Um, I mean, I guess there it is. Like, if you go into a gallery and there's a there's a kitchen there, and you're just allowed to cook, I mean, what does that say to you? What's going to happen? What would you be thinking? I guess I don't need to pause here. You could pause the, the episode if you want. Think about that, or think about that after the episode. <laughs> um, so back to it. Um, Borio takes as a grassroots. I did that one. The relational shows he has curated have immediacy about them, but. Um, the question is then, where does this immediacy lead to? What is the effect of the public's experience with these works? Do the spaces really promote dialogue centered on the topic of democracy to take place as they are intended to do? Herbert Marcuse stated in his book, The Aesthetic Dimension, which was written before Borio, but uh, after Debord, that... Quote, the political potential of art lies only in its own aesthetic dimension. Its relation to praxis is inexorably indirect, mediated and frustrating. Its relation to praxis is when theory is put into practice, is inexorably, and there's that phrase again, that word again, inexorably indirect. Its relation to putting something into practice is, it has to be indirect, is what he's saying. That's the aesthetic dimension. 
med it's mediated and frustrating. The more immediate the work of art, the more it reduces the power of estrangement and the radical transcendent goals of art. You see here it's kind of like defending... So if these artists are kind of saying that, oh, some representational art like a painting or a sculpture is not good enough, it's not dealing enough, it's not reestablishing human relations enough. Um, so we're going to make these installations where hopefully these, um, these uh, conversations happen. But then the, he's arguing here um, that if the aesthetics, like what are the aesthetics of an installation where is the art? What are, what's the criteria for saying it's art or not? Because um, if that aesthetic dimension is lost, then a certain amount of the kind of, as he put it here, the inherent um, estrangement and the radical transcendental goals of art are lost. I'll just continue on. Uh, this throws serious skepticism on the immediate technique as used in the project of relational aesthetics. For Marcuse, if art is for change, art must not sacrifice its aesthetic dimension in order to af affect a change. Mm -hmm. While the Quote, while the abandonment of the aesthetic form may well provide the most immediate, most direct mirror of a society, the rejection of the aesthetic sublimation turns such works into bits and pieces of the very society whose anti-art they want to be. Anti-art is self-defeating from the outset. And that was from Herbert Marcuse, the aesthetic dimension. What forms do relational aesthetics take? How are its aesthetics defined? If its aesthetics are indefinable, then, as Marcuse says, how can we distinguish from an art which purports, meaning claims, to indict the established reality without becoming a part of it? For if it has no aesthetic, is it art? So what are the aesthetics of these relational artworks? Uh, arts inexorable. I'm using that phrase, that word again. Arts like... Um, arts inexorable relation to praxis cannot overthrow the social division of labor. Paradoxically, it is this division which gives art its esoteric character. The esoteric artistic critique frustratingly also cannot popularize itself by disseminating this critique without its emancipatory impact being weakened by spectacularization in the media. The critique is at its strongest when it remains esoteric. I guess it's kind of talking about like works of art that you actually have to think about, that you actually have to kind of like spend some time with to really get. Um... The self-professed, because any work of art that's too direct, uh, maybe it's... Um, I'll just go on. Because <laughs> if I'm not being specific, it's hard to talk about it. Um, the, the, like, if I'm not talking about a specific work of art, um, compare, comparing some direct work of art with a more esoteric, aesthetic dimension going on you know um the self-professed emancipatory 
these are these questions I'm saying here now are maybe things I can, I could maybe, um, you know, I'm gonna, I've said them now and I'm thinking about them, so it might lead to something else after this, you know. So, um, the critique is at its strongest when it remains esoteric. The self-professed emancipatory project of relational aesthetics may very well contribute to the importance of dissent in society for without the faculty to dissent meaning dis to disagree which in modern times is almost appeased to slumber as i was saying in the first part of this episode about like nietzsche's um in the first chapter of thus spoke zarathustra he's in that book he puts forward his philosophy of the ubermensch that's the german for the superman which is kind of like in a way then where where man has to evolve to like what is man's next evolution what's he going to be um so he's talking about that he puts it forth uh in that book and uh and then he compares the uberman the ubermensch the superman to the ultimate man who is the man who who, do, who no longer has this dissent in him. Everything is just like a miserable ease and he no longer wants to overcome himself, no longer wants to self-improve. He just kind of <laughs> is just, uh, yeah, not, not evolving, I guess you could say. Um, which in modern times is almost appeased to slumber. Due to media stultification, there would be no such thing as the idea of democracy even. Let me just read that other sentence again. The self-professed emancipatory project of relational aesthetics may very well contribute to the importance of dissent in society. For without the faculty of dissent, which in modern times is almost appeased to slumber due to the media stultification, there would be no such thing as the idea of democracy even. The idea, or the, the bewildered herd would be subject to the whims of those in power and be expected to adhere, to stick to, um, unquestionably to whatever societal values are set in place. Claire Bishop states, quote, without the concept of utopia, there is no possibility of a radical imaginary. Yeah. For Marcuse, if art is for any collective consciousness, it is in the raising of awareness for the need for ch change in society. For Marcuse, if, if art is for any collective consciousness, it is in the raising of awareness for the need for change in society. So yeah, that's Ubermensch-ish, Ubermensch-ish, <laughs> Superman-ish overcoming himself, self-improving. Um, inherent in the role of the artist is sustenance of the universal need for liberation. Inherent in the role of the artist is sustenance of the universal need for liberation. And here now I'm just reminded of the last episode I did about Scandinavian mythology and how Odin... Um, seems to have been like a very early articulator in Scandinavian society. And then he got mythologized into uh, a kind of a, uh, yeah, kind of a myth, essentially. He was the first articulator of many things, perhaps, for that culture. And there was a, there was, I think, his name, Odin, I think it was in, I think it was described as, 
possibly coming from the word for movement. Like he was, he was movement, you know, because, um, where am I going with this thought? Where's the sentence? Maybe I'll get the train of thought back again. Inherent in the role of the artist is sustenance of the universal need for liberation by the rejection of the all pervasive stultifying conventions within society. Uh, I'm just, I guess, I guess I'm connecting this, this Odin was like an artist. He was an articulator. Um, and his name Odin, I think came from uh, movement um, and like, um, it's, as they say here, inherent in the role of the artist is sustenance of the universal need for liberation. I guess I'm equating this Odin being an articulator and him being called something that relates to movement. And then that is, um, connect, I'm connecting that movement to like the utopian, the utopianism of artists that moves society all move society on all the time. Um, it doesn't stay st stagnant and stale in the one place. It's always trying to improve. Uh, so yeah, that's what I was <laughs> connecting. Um, uh, inherent in the role of the artist is sustenance of the universal need for liberation or utopianism, you could say, by the rejection of all the... Per by the rejection of the all-pervasive stultifying conventions within society. Art can highlight the extent of the all-pervasive problems inherent in our society through its inexorably indirect relation to praxis. The danger which the immediate technique puts, put into practice by relational artworks is that the notion of utopia or emancipation is being popularized and commodified by such artworks. Claire Bishop states that relational works, quote, dedicated project seems to be to create a buzz of creativity and also to create the aura of being at the vanguard of contemporary production. she's kind of actually criticizing it for being possibly pretentious, actually, in, in a way, is what she's saying there. Um, could these artworks which allude to emancipation within society be an advancement of art critic Clement Greenberg's theory of kitsch? For Greenberg, kitsch is essentially the paragon of the avant-garde. It is what ornament is to modernism. Um, let me think if I, how can I explain that? For Greenberg, kitsch is essentially the paragon of the avant-garde. Um, it is what ornament is to modernism. Um, could these artworks which allude to emancipation within society be an advancement of art critic Clement Greenberg's theory of kitsch? Kitsch is just something from every day. Um, for Greenberg, Kitsch is essentially the paragon of the avant-garde. Uh, I think it just basically means, um, yeah, it's not actually doing what it thinks it's doing. Uh, it's doing something almost to, to the opposite effect. 
um, it is what ornament is to modernism because you don't have ornament in modernism, for example. Because um, ornamism, uh, ornamism, modernism was all about a paring down, boiling down, back to basics, no ornamentation. You know what I mean? It was all like everything was uh, consciously done. Nothing was just like ornament. You know what I mean? Um, in his foreword to Relational Aesthetics, uh, Borio nonchalantly claims, quote, Anyhow, the liveliest factor that is played out on the chessboard of art has to do with interactive, user-friendly and relational concepts. So Borio is claiming that like this is kind of the most pressing, lively, uh, pressing need in the art world. And these artworks that are doing this are the most lively engagement with, with uh, this uh, need. Um, this quote can be interpreted as self-praise and self-promotion. Um, one is inclined to think it may reveal a desire in Borio to carve out his place in the art world market. Um, the problem of commodification creeps back into the equation. The efforts of... This is really making me want to look into these artworks again, actually, to see um, now... Uh, what I think of them now. Um, the problem of commodification creeps back into the equation. The efforts of art practices like relational aesthetics, regardless of the criticism of their reported shortcomings, have created much debate. In section 3.2, dialogical art, which is similar to Borio's relational aesthetics, but is without the branding, is discussed. In contrast, the projects that form the focus of the next section are less interested in framing relations as an aesthetic than in using relations directly to strive towards achieving defined objectives through collaborative activity. Dialogical art practices are closer to Marcuse's argument that art should be orchestrated towards raising awareness of the need for liberation, regardless of class. This method opposes Borio's relational aesthetics and ornamental effort, is what I said. <laughs> yeah, I was very influenced by the by the critiques of um, by the critics of relational aesthetics. Um, it's really making me kind of curious about that whole debate now again. Actually, um, I would like I would like to experience some of these relational artworks if there's any still going. Um, um, I mean, I mentioned Liam Gillick and Rearcrit Tirvanesia. Um, who else was there? Those are two anyway. Um, so. That's that. And now I think it's on to the last section now, is it? Let me have a quick flick. 35. Yeah, we're nearly there. So dialogical, let me see what the time is now. It's probably like, oh yeah, this is going to be about an hour and a half. So um, section 3.2, or should I end it now? Give myself a break. Ah, I'll just continue on. Dialogical practices. Dialogical praxis. Maybe I do need a break. <laughs> um, no, I'll keep going. Um, as post-structuralist theories were assimilated by 
installation artists. As post-structuralist theories were assimilated by installation artists, yeah, as I mentioned in the second chapter, in an attempt to decenter individual perspectives, here other theories which are used as praxis in contemporary socially engaged art are discussed. So, the open work by Umberto Eco and the death of the author by Roland Barth and the author as producer by Walter Benjamin all deal with the nature of subjectivity. These works contribute to raising an awareness of the fallibility, meaning like likelihood to be wrong, of an author's work to be interpreted as she or he intended. This is so because individuals viewing work or reading texts all project their own individual interpretations onto the world according to their memory of, or of experience. It is relevant to note here that Russian literary theorist Mikhail Bakhtin argued that the work that the work of art can be viewed as a kind of conversation, a locus of different differing meanings, interpretations and points of view. Works of art can thus be instigators of conversations between viewers about the ideas which a work may seem to represent. Works of art can thus be in instigators of conversations between viewers about the ideas which a work may seem to represent. You know what, I am going to divide this one up into probably going to be the last section is only going to be about maybe 30 minutes, but uh, what's that, like an hour now? Yeah, I'll just leave that one. I'll leave this section here. I'll go take a quick break <laughs> and uh, then I'll be refreshed um, because, yeah, as I'm saying, I do this whole thing live. Um, so, yeah, I'll just uh, take a quick break and uh, we'll um, meet again in sec part three of this episode. It's going to be the first episode where there's like three sections but uh maybe it's quite maybe it's longer maybe it's the longest reading i've done i'm not sure anyway right i'll take a break and uh let's continue after <laughs>